You're all very welcome to my siblings at the bar and to um, all others who are joining us for this uh, fantastic event. I am Aoife McNichol. I'm chair of the Equality and Resilience Committee here at the Bar Council. And I am just delighted to have um, this fantastic panel to start this conversation um, as part of our focus this year um, in the Equality and Resilience Committee. Um, we really wanted to start uh, these important conversations, um, both around disability um, and now about uh, race inclusion at the bar um, within the legal professions in general. Uh, so I'm absolutely delighted now to be um, kicking off this conversation um, today in the new year. And um, like I said, we have a fantastic panel. We have, um, we're going to go first of all, um, I'd say to Sandra Healy, who is the CEO of Inclusio and the founding director of the DCU Centre of Excellence for Diversity. Um, we have Leon Diop, who's the CEO of Black and Irish, and um, who have, they have been doing huge work. I'm sure most of you are um, following them on Instagram. They've been doing huge work on um, bringing awareness, I suppose, to the Black and Irish community and their stories. And um, we've also got Simon Regis, who uh, was the co-chair of the, the Bar Council in England and Wales Race Working Group, um, who uh, published a very important piece of work, which we will um, ask Simon about um, in just a minute. And um, we really want to hear from uh, the people who are attending and any questions that you have. So as we're going along, any questions that you have, just throw them into the chat uh, panel there. And um, as we're going along, we'll hopefully either answer them um, like that or we'll come to a Q&A section at the end. Um, so you're all very welcome. Sandra, I'll come to you first. Um, I suppose you're in the world of academia and um, you're, you're both researching in the area of diversity and also working on the topic of diversity within uh, the academic, um, I suppose, sphere. So I suppose, what what kind of work or what, what changes have you seen over the last, say, even 10 years, take a, a short period of time um, on the area of diversity? Uh, thanks, Aoife, and thanks for the opportunity to join the panel today. Uh, I think, I suppose, just to give a little bit of background and, and context to wh why I'm here speaking about this today. So I spent 20 years in the telecoms industry working across the UK and Ireland. Um, and my connection to Dublin City University is I studied organisational psychology in there. So I went into the university in 2016 and I went in to develop and deliver, deliver the strategy for the university on diversity and inclusion. So up to that point, there was only a focus on equality. Uh, so I went in then to start to look at the broader, how can we start to embed diversity and inclusion, good practices into everything we did across the university. And coming from industry, my, my focus on diversity and inclusion was much broader than gender, which at that time was kind of a key focus really in the university sector, which was driven by a certification model uh, called Athena Swan. So some of you may have heard of that. Uh, it certainly focused the minds, Athena Swan, because it was linked, it is linked uh, to research funding. So if you can't demonstrate good practices in gender equality uh, in, in your university and what are you doing to, to resolve some of the issues that came, came up, uh, you, it's linked to research funding. So there's a, there's a, it certainly focuses the minds. Uh, but one of the things that happened then is uh, Athena Swan started to move into the space of intersectionality. So the intersection of race and ethnicity and, and gender. And I think that what that brought to us then um, as practitioners across the sector was how are we going to tackle this? Because race and ethnicity was not something that was even 
talked about, never mind think about how you're going to build it in to your policy and practice. Um, so one of the things we did, uh, we established an, at a national level uh, uh, a working group called the Intersectionality Working Group connected in to the HEA, the, the Higher Education Authority. And, and really, Aoife, our focus was um, from that perspective is what are the what's the challenge we're, we're, we're dealing with here? And one of the key things that came up for us was the lack of uh, language and terms around race and ethnicity in Ireland. So we very quickly recognised that we could not pick up uh, the, the narrative around race and ethnicity from, from the UK, for example, and, and it would work here. And the same from the US and other parts of the world, it just didn't fit. So that was one of the challenges that faced us is around the language and the narrative around race and ethnicity in Ireland. And just to say, certainly my view and certainly the view of the working group is that we have a phenomenal opportunity in Ireland. We're a very young multicultural society. It's only really in the last 30 years um, that we have become a multi multicultural society. And we don't have a lot of the legacy challenges that some of other countries are dealing with. You know, So we have, I have academics that I would work with across the world that watch Ireland with, with anticipation around the opportunity of getting this right. Um, but one of the key things um, and, and areas that we focus on is, is the workplace. So looking at, you know, you, there's an expectation now and, uh, that, that our workplaces are reflective of the societies and the communities we serve. And if we look at Ireland, 18% uh, of our population now are, are from a migrant background. So how do we and what do we need to do and put into place uh, to make sure that our workforces are reflective? So that's the diversity piece. Um, but it's a revolving door if you don't focus on inclusion. OK, and inclusion is uh, everybody's responsibility. Um, and some of that is around personal, your own education yourself and getting up to speed uh, and being respectfully curious about human difference and, and creating that welcoming environment uh, when when people um, who are different to you come in, come into your organization. So that's a whistle stop tour, can I just say, of <laughs> a five years of work. Um, and probably didn't give you any any key things around what you need to do to get started, but that's the start of the conversation, I think. Well, I suppose there was, um, I, I think respectfully curious is a fantastic way to put it. Um, <laughs> I, I like that phrase, I'm going to use it. Um, I, I think that um, what you talked about there in terms of um, language and terminology is hugely important. And Leon, I'll, I'll um, come to you in relation to that. How important is you know, and what impact does, you know, terminology and, and language have when we're having these conversations about diversity and inclusion? Uh, thank, thanks so much, Aoife, and uh, thanks everyone for the, the opportunity to speak to you today. It's, it's an absolute honour. If, if I could really just uh, quickly touch on uh, Sandra's closing uh, remarks there about the opportunity that, that is in front of us. Like, we really can't underestimate it. It, it is a massive opportunity. We don't have the legacy issues. And not only do we have the the scope to shape our, our own language here and, and really be a you know a leader in that space, but we we could be a global leader and everyone could look to Ireland as the gold standard for uh, you know uh, terminology around um, you know people from ethnic minority backgrounds. So that that is something that I definitely think uh, you know shouldn't be be underestimated. It language is is, is a really funny thing um, because. It's heavily underestimated, but is it is incredibly powerful. Um, I didn't understand the the strength of language until I I started looking at the terminology that I use around myself. Um, 
so I'm I'm a mixed race man. I I, I grew up in Tala to a Senegalese father and an Irish mother, and I used to refer to myself as as a term called half caste, and I, I did that for years, and and I, I really I never understood the, the the severity of it, and when I looked into what half caste meant, um, you, you know, it, it it comes from the Latin for half castus, and castus meaning pure, so. All that time that I was referring to myself as half cast, I was calling myself half pure. Um, and I, I remember catching myself a couple of times afterwards because I, I used it maybe once or twice afterwards. And, and I, I realized just how much it was impacting my, my confidence, how I was nearly removing myself from my Irish identity because of the language that I was using. Um, so, so yeah, absolutely. Language is something that is, is incredibly powerful. And if, if, if we don't get it right, it can lead to things like, um, as as Sandra mentioned, it, it, there being revolving doors in places. Um, I, I work as as a recruiter in in a in a tech uh, company, and I'm I'm seeing people more and more focus on equality, diversity, and inclusion when they're coming in and and wanting to know exactly what is being done for cert, certain minority groups. Um, you know, in, in the organization that, that they, they're not even a part of. So it, it is, it is really interesting um, how powerful language is. It's, it's incredibly powerful. Yeah. And I suppose um, we have an audience of um, probably mostly lawyers. Uh, so obviously language is kind of what we deal in um, and terminology and the nuance of language. And I suppose how, um, you know, how the use of some words can really just dictate, um, I suppose, how open people are to conversation, how curious they are, or whether it's something more sinister. And the use of one word can just change the tone um, immediately. And I suppose, um, what would you say to people who are saying, you know, well, I could be using words that are offensive um, and I don't know. And how do I learn more? Like, what would you say in terms of those people who are, who do want to be respectfully curious and who do want to, I suppose, um, educate themselves? So, yeah, so, so there's, there's a couple of things. Um, the, f- the first thing is, is intent and impact. Um, like what you intend to say might not be how it, it is received but by the other person. So certainly, you definitely, if you're, if you're not aware of, of your own language or if you're not aware of certain words are, are okay to use, you can definitely educate yourself on it. Um, and you can do that in, in, in a couple of ways. There's lots of material that's that's been produced on this by, by uh, my wonderful colleagues who are on the call with me. Um, and one thing that I, I've begun to ask people in, in this journey of like starting Black and Irish and stuff like that is allow yourself to be uncomfortable allow yourself to ask questions that you, you know you, you might not normally ask um rather than standing there in front of someone and you know erring and awing about what word to use just ask them you know like look you, you know i'm not sure what term to use here what what term w- would you think is most appropriate that that can eliminate weeks of of anguish and uh, uh, you know not being sure what words to use so that that would be my take on it anyways or worse, like just avoiding the situation and yeah. then there's no conversation about it. So yeah. uh, that's what I was going to say. Aoife. That's that's certainly what I find. OK, particularly with a lot of white people where we're not used to using a language of race. Right. Because we don't describe ourselves through that lens. Yet we describe everybody else through that lens. 
Um, so, so what we need to think about is um, how it's about that respectful piece. It's around um, being curious and and edu education. Uh, what I find in Ireland in particular is that we avoid. OK, so if we and particularly if you're in a legal profession or you're in a position of you're a senior leader, there's this expectation that you're supposed to know everything. Mm. And when you don't, uh, if you think you might get it wrong, you'll avoid rather than actually get, in, get engaged in it. So there's, the, the, that's the challenge I think that we're facing uh, quite often. And the, the revolving door aspect is important because obviously this this has come up in a few different um, ways, you know, this certainly within the legal profession, you know, there is an attrition point where we lose, start to lose people um, at the bar. Um, we have, um, we started with collecting data on the issue of gender, for example, you know, about six years ago. And that led us down this path to, you know, this conversation now that we're broadening it out, I suppose. And um, Simon, obviously, um, the UK or the Bar of England and Wales have are in a very different space when it comes to um, race at the bar, which is the title of the the report that um, you co-authored um, in in the race working group uh, as part of the Bar Council of England and Wales. Um, what have you found in terms of the experience of um, your bar and that attrition and the revolving door, um, you know, that this aspect of, yeah, we may talk the talk and people come in. How do we hold on to people then? Okay. Um, first of all, can I say thank you very much for inviting me to speak here. Um, and before I go on to that question, there's just one thing I want to pick up from what both Leon and Sandra said. Um, in relation to language, sometimes you just need to be comfortable with being uncomfortable and being in that space of it's it's edgy and you're going to make mistakes but again if you ask and if you're curious people are going to forgive you for that and so it's just it, it's talking about race is uncomfortable and it's talk, and it's and it's uncomfortable both for the person who is trying to navigate that space but also the person who is is in the sort of the receiving end of that in terms of, of what, what we're doing in the bar council of england wales obviously we produce this report and i think the starting point is for us very much, um, and, and, and my co-chair Barbara Mills QC has sort of put this point home quite a lot. We are in the space of, we've talked about this so much, now we actually need to be doing things because we have, you know, so, and, and this, this is an important thing about data. Data is very important. Yes, you need to collect it, but once you've collected it, you don't just sit there and then think, oh, actually we need more data and more data and more data to reinforce and to be in that space of we're actually really not sure you need to act on it and you know our data the data that we've collected in the report deals with attrition deals with the facts of um, work allocation deals with the fact that for example in the in the hierarchy of pay um, white men earn more than white women white women earn more than asian and black women and black women earn the, earn, earn the least we have we have you know we we have sufficient data about the fact of people leaving the profession um because in fact as you say we talk the talk about coming in and it being open and you know you know it's all about meritocracy but the reality of it is is that the culture at the bar of england wales isn't that equal in any way shape or form um you we we had a, you know aspiring barristers and pupils talking about well when they're looking at chambers to apply to for pupillage, they'll go to the websites because everybody's on the internet, and they will see a, a sea. They will see a sea of white, predominantly white 
male faces in certain chambers. In others, they might see white male and female faces. They will not see that many people that look like them. And, you know, so part of what we were trying to achieve with our report was actually to say, we all know what the problem is. We now need to do something about it. So, of course, you know, we've got recommendations. We've got, you know, we're, we're talking about target setting. We're talking about data monitoring. We're talking about action plans because we've got to the stage in our journey where talking about it is no longer a valid option and gathering data as your starting point is no longer the space you need to be in. And I think this comes back to the point that both Leon and Sandra made and you made at the beginning is that the, the context in Ireland is different and you guys actually have a really good opportunity to look at what's happened in other jurisdictions, to look at things and see, okay, that may not fit directly here, but there's some best practice. You can sort of cherry pick and see what you can then contextualize for Ireland in a way that for other jurisdictions, particularly, you know, ours, those that have legacy issues that they're still dealing with, that you're in a, a much better space. So I wholeheartedly agree with you when he says, you know, Ireland could be, you know, the, become the gold standard of how you how you deal with things in this space, because you've got much more freedom. Um, and if I can use a fairly pejorative term, you don't have the shackles that other jurisdictions will have in this particular space. And I, I suppose that's, um, I suppose the importance of having that diversity in, within any profession, um, you know, obviously, you know, within society is, I suppose, a, a much broader conversation that we couldn't be dealing with in the 40 minutes that we, we have. But I suppose in terms of, say, for example, what we're trying to do here at the bar is, you know, encourage people who are from, um, I suppose, what would, wouldn't be considered the usual background uh, to come to the bar. And by usual, uh, you know, I'm not only talking about, um, you know, people from um, ethnic minorities, you know, there's people from rural Ireland, people from, you know, um, so different socioeconomic backgrounds. But I suppose, Sandra, if I can come to you about just the importance of diversity. And I know we, you know, it's all bandied about this importance of diversity, but I suppose from, from your research and your work within um, the academic setting, you know, can you talk about the, the importance of diversity through the impact that that can have, you know, the positive impact that that can have on um, a sector? Yeah, it's interesting. I'm, I'm listening to the conversation around data collection, and that's the world I live in at the moment in Inclusio. So I, I went into DCU with an idea in my head around building and bringing technology um, to help DNI practitioners and to help industries start to bring uh, measurement and baseline data and metrics to diversity and inclusion. Because for me, I'm a scientist background, right? So for me, it's show me the evidence. Um, so that's what we've done with Inclusio was built a tool um, that allows uh, individuals to anonymously build their diversity profile. So what does that do, Aoife, to your, to your question? So what we have been, we've spent four years in research and development in the university to build a tool, short interactions for people to go in and safely build a profile. And we bring that baseline data back then into the organization. And what that allows the organization to do is to start to think about where do I need to focus my efforts? Because there's no one, like what, what Simon has done and the work uh, he's done in, in his, in his uh, organization, you can't pick that up and think it's gonna apply. And, and because it doesn't, and it doesn't even if they're in the same sector. 
like diversity and inclusion is is very much uh, uh, based on the context and the culture that's in the organization and 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 what I always say, it's never done because you might have it all beautiful. It's a wonderful, inclusive environment and you hire in five new people and now the whole thing starts to shift all over again. So it's a constant um, uh, piece of work. So what we do is we produce and deliver the data anonymously aggregated for the organization to be able to make informed decisions around what do we need to do and where. So it's not just what, but where do we need to focus our efforts so, and I always think about attraction, when I think about the, the life cycle of a person in work, I think about attraction, retaining and promoting. So when you think about attracting, there's a whole set of things you can do around what do we need to do to show that we're welcoming and representative. We want to be representative of our society. So that's the first piece around or attraction and, and, and hiring. The other piece then is around the retention. So as you said, Aoife, I see this all the time. When you have an, a minority population, regardless of what, what the difference is, if it's less than 30%, this is what the research shows us. If you have less than 30% of a represented group, whether it be gender or whatever it is around the table, it is near impossible to break through the group think. And it is near impossible for you to feel like that you actually are, your contribution is being taken seriously at the table. So think about that the next time you're in a meeting and you look around and there's 30% of, of an underrepresented group, whatever that is, it's very difficult for them. So you have to consciously make a, an effort in from a cultural perspective to make sure that you're making sure that everybody can contribute to whatever needs to be contributed to, whether it's a meeting. Uh, um, so, so that's an important point, that inclusive culture, because it will be a revolving door. If you don't get that inclusive environment, that needs to shift and the culture needs to shift uh, and, and part of that is education. We've already talked about that. That's personal education and also the employer taking responsibility around education, around policies and practices, equality and, and diversity policies. Um, and then the other piece I, I mentioned was around uh, uh, promotion. Like we see this all the time, even with really diverse organizations. And I won't, I won't call out any tech companies now that say they're absolutely wonderful. I call it diversity theater right? They're wonderful. It all looks great on the outside, but you start to get into under the bonnet of it and you start to look at succession and senior leaders and who's making the decisions in the organization and representation is very poor. So there's a problem there. Okay. So that's, you can't, it's not just about the hiring in, you have to create the, in, the environment where people can flourish and they're valued for their difference. And then you also have to create very consciously create the conditions for everybody to compete equally and have equal um, equitable access to the opportunities within the organization. So there's a lot of work to do. I don't want you to be feeling overwhelmed either, right? This is a thousand small things that make all of this. And in fact, most of the insights are already within the people in your organization. So it's about how do you create space for people to start talking to you about what are the things that need to be attended to and, and need to be fixed. And just to say our technology starts to pick up some of that. We have quantitative and qualitative uh, insights that we collect safely and then bring back to the organization and help you build an action plan. Um, and I, I think that's a great point that, um, you know, the, the knowledge of how to move forward is more than likely within an organization. And I suppose, and Leon, I might come to you in relation to this. Um, I suppose 
is there is there too much weight or burden being placed on the few people who are in an organization that to i suppose lead the way as to how uh, you know diversity and inclusion is is um progressed and um i suppose how how do you ensure that um i suppose it's not left to people from minority backgrounds to carry the burden yeah, absolutely. For for leaders of an organization, it's very important to make sure that everyone in the organization is is included and is expected to to contribute um to building inclusion and, and diversity within within the organization. Um too often it is actually placed on the few ethnic minority people that are in the organization, like, ah, you're you 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 know, you understand. So can you give us some some strategies, please, that we can that we can roll out? Um and, and realistically what they're what they're trying to do is is build strategies without putting the the culture behind it that will you, you, you know you can have the the best strategies in the world the the, mo- the most colorful infographics and everything like that but if you don't have a culture that behind those strategies that you know make sure that people feel included and uh, you, you know make sure that everyone is involved in in the conversation um of, of inclusion in an organization it's going to fall flat on its face um I heard a quote before and it, it it stuck with me and it's something that I've um tried to to bring in bring with me wherever I go, whether that's in, in, in my job or in black and Irish. And it's culture eats strategy for breakfast. And it everywhere I go now I, I, I see it. If you've got a wonderful strategy but a culture that doesn't back it, it's gonna fall flat on its face. So um it's important to make sure that the bird is not placed on the few ethnic minority people that you have working with you. Um, or, or, or for you and that you, you make sure that everyone is, is included in the conversation. I suppose on that, um, I suppose it's encouraging people who are from, you know, ethnic minorities to, to come forward if, if an organisation is wanting to start a conversation and to, to see what uh, changes can be made or should be made within a culture, um, you know, so that their voices are heard. Um, I suppose there's, there's certainly um, going to be work to be done certainly um from our end but that's what this is all about uh, to start talking about it and simon um i suppose from from your experience um i suppose again it, it's it's just very interesting to me because it's another bar um kind of situation what recommendations apart from the you know stop talking start start acting uh, what recommendations um i suppose uh, would be most applicable um you know in terms of the your report in terms of that doing what actions um did did you recommend yeah so across we looked at and, and, it, and it's interesting to see the conversation you're having now because it, it's mapped in very much the same way we focused on four areas which was um access retention, progression, and culture. And as Leon says, you can do all of those other things, but if the culture culture of the organization, of, of the industry that you're looking at, isn't going to tackle this issue, then all of this is a waste of time. Um, within those four areas, we have, um, so o- overall we have 23 recommendations um, in the report, and then we've broken those down into the sort of the individual areas. So for example, and um, what we've said in relation to access, you know, so this is this is one of them about recruitment processes need to be improved. So we've talked about um, information and application pack messaging. Um, chambers, you know, are wishing to be more diverse should be much more explicit about this in their pupillage recruitment strategy and their communications. Application form 
um, weightings um, should be reviews to recognize how people have overcome adversity. Because if you're just looking at those people who've gone to the best universities, who've got first class degrees, who've effectively sailed through, what about those people that have had to overcome a lot of challenges and have reached the same point? Those people most likely have learned more and actually have a lot more life experience to give and to bring to a role than, and I'm not saying that you disregard your high flyers, but you need to, you need to be slightly more holistic about what you, what you view as success. How do you define that? You know, simple things like panel makeup of your pupillage committees and those sifting needs to be diverse. Something that's really, I know that's really quite tricky for many chambers at the bar to do, or at least for them to say to do, is actually providing feedback. Because it's actually quite important if people are unsuccessful to have a better understanding of, of why that is. And again, that comes back to a culture of, you know, I remember when I applied for pupillage in the last century, um, many, many years ago, for this ones that I was unsuccessful, I was just told you were unsuccessful. Well, that's good to know, because you know, but then how does that help? How do I know what I need to address to improve? Um, if we're looking at retention, it's about having, you know, we, we talked about um, having methodologies and toolkits to support mon uh, work monitoring and allocation um, and income by race and, and training for, for barristers clerks. Rec recognizing that barristers clerks perform a vital gatekeeping role. Mm -hmm. If they are not diverse, if they are not on board, that can have a singularly destructive effect on those members of chambers who are from diverse backgrounds because they're not getting the recognition, they're not getting the visibility they need to progress within in, in the profession. Mm -hmm. um, again, when you're looking at, you know, those progressing, progressing higher up, you know, we have recommendations around, you know, the panel silk and judicial career pathways need to be developed um, with, you know, for those coming from underrepresented um, ethnic minority backgrounds. So, you know, there are, there are 23 recommendations in there. So what I would say to people is take the time to read the report to see the various things that we, we have set out. Mm -hmm. um, and again, this comes back to, to something that Sandra said at the beginning. We've wrapped all of, all of this around in, in our three overarching recommendations about target setting and data, data and monitoring is also about having action plans. Because again, having an action plan means you're, you're starting to take the conversation beyond just talking about it. You're, you're setting yourself and saying, this is, this is what we are going to do. And then it moves into that cycle of, okay, so we've set an action plan. These are our targets. Reviewing those targets, have they been met? So within the context of this report, the Bar Council are going back to report uh, in October of this year as to where we have got with this one year on. And we are engaged with our stakeholders, for example, the bar standards boards, the inns, the um, circuits, the specialist bar associations. We're having conversations with them to say, right, we've produced this report. It set out some things. Yes, we know the bar council may need to provide some help and guidance, but what are you actually doing to take this matter forward? And we'd like to know because we're going to come back and report on it next year or this year. So there's a sort of a, if you want to look at it, carrot and stick approach, which is we've helped you. And, 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 for, and, you know, part of it was some people saying, oh, well, you know, I'm not sure how to draft an action plan or where do I start? And my response, flippant as it was, was if you type action plan into Google, 
I'm sure you'll find 101 different templates of how you can draft up an action plan. And if you add the words diversity and inclusion, you will find some more. You'll find them, some that are specific. So I come from the space of saying, oh, what I don't want to hear is reasons why it can't be done. I'd rather see you try and maybe not get it right or need, things need to be tweaking than to say, well, I don't know where, where I start from. Yeah, perfect as the enemy of, of done, as they say. Um, but and having been involved in drafting a said action plan <laughs> within um, our bar council, uh, I, I can say that it's certainly something that is doable and um, we're hoping to launch it shortly, actually. So uh, watch this space for that. But um, obviously the, the UK or the sorry, the England and Wales experience is, is different in that we, we don't have the chambers system here. But um, some of the recommendations that you were um, summarising there um, certainly would remind me, I suppose, of spaces like where there are um, state tenders for, um, you know, pan panels of council for various state work that perhaps, you know, those application forms and those expression of interest forms should be looked at to ensure that they're not in some way weighted against um, people from ethnic minority backgrounds. Um, and certainly that's something that maybe is a conversation for, for a different space, but, you know, there are still um, ways in which those recommendations, I think, are, are useful to anyone who's looking at this in the, the Irish context um, and, and within the legal profession. Um, I just see that there's a question up here and I'm going to, uh, to, to go to it. Ursula Connolly, who um, teaches in NUI Galway, is, uh, she says she's conscious of the contrast between the increasing diversity of the student body and the lack of diversity then in the teaching staff and the learning materials that they use. And um, that she remembers as a, a, a female student uh, back in the 90s, feeling that it was very much um, a, the, an area of white male preserve uh, with very little female representation at that time. And that she fears that uh, we're doing the same again for, for those from ethnic minorities. And her question is, um, does the panel have any advice on how, and I might come to Sandra first, but I'll, I'll, um, Leon and Simon, feel free to um, pop in after that. Uh, her question is, any advice on how we might address that until staffing and or, learn, and or learning materials become more representative? So. Yeah, I, I did. I saw that question, Aoife. It's a big one. Uh, we could probably have uh, many uh, events talking about that. And, and I completely agree with Ursula. Certainly my short five years in higher education, it was something that came up again and again. Um, it's it's very difficult. I think we'll all to change the curriculum is a is a huge thing, and it's that's I suppose it's it's nearly a culture change as well, even to try and get everybody lined up to be able to do that. Uh, some of the things I have seen um, that were very effective, actually, one thing I heard in uh, in DCU on an international masters programs, uh, what they did was they they deliberately uh, made sure that groups were uh, that when when they were putting groups of students into groups for group work um, that it was a very deliberate, diverse mixing um, because people like people like themselves. That's the pattern matching brain that we were all born with. Um, and that's just the way it is. Right. So so when 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 divert when we're faced with diversity and, and we're, we're, we're going to act and behave in, in, you know, seeking out people like people like like ourselves. Right. So uh, one of the things they did in this international master's programs to, to address that is they deliberately um, and consciously put people into working groups uh, and ensured and created opportunities for people to share 
and um, uh, share and celebrate and leverage the, the different perspectives in the group. So it wasn't just kind of letting them off and let them uh, let them go for it. And the impact that that had, like I, I saw some of the insights that came back over the years um, from that international uh, uh, master's program and the difference in the experience of where, where it started out with these uh, pockets of all white Irish students all working together and the rest of the people haven't been left to try and figure out how are they going to be put it, uh, how are they going to find a group to work with uh, compared to what the the uh, the other, you know, what they ended up with was a much richer experience for from everybody's perspective um, and a, a much richer output from the course as well, because what the, the projects that they worked on had the different perspectives kind of molded and, and ingrained in that I know that's difficult if you have 250 first years sitting in front of you, right? That's probably you're not able to do that. Um, so the only thing I think you do have an opportunity to do is maybe additional reading material, you know, making sure that you're, you're not, I suppose, following maybe the same 10 or 15 recommendations around reading material that as a, as a lecturer, you might start to promote uh, and ask actually, not just promote, not do the work yourself, maybe give a task out to the 250 students. Can you come up with some additional reading materials and start to build a different library that brings diversity into it? It's a tough one. And I, I think where I would be more aware, just to finish, where I would be more aware of this is, is in not so much in third level, but what's happening in our primary and secondary schools where some some of the curriculum there hasn't been looked at for years. And I've heard some stories around um, some of the books that are there are talking about slavery and, and, and things that are really inappropriate and creating very uncomfortable situations for particularly young people. Um, uh, like, and that's not great. Right. So it's happening. Right. It is a culture change. And I think it needs to be driven at, at, at the top. I think that's a, a very important point because I remember having a conversation with a colleague who, um, you know, it wasn't even on her radar to come to the bar or to go into law. It just was not on her radar at all um, because it's not something that she thought would be for her. And but for um, a career guidance teacher who really saw her potential, like it's it's pure chance. Um, and you know she she um, is now um, at the bar, and you know it's it's I suppose it's not fair to leave it up to chance. <laughs> you know for um, for specific key people um, to to try and promote. But I suppose this goes back to the equality action plan that it can't just be an internal for members. I suppose from our perspective. Um, it has to be a looking forward to what can we do to entice um, more diverse uh, a more diverse pool uh, of barristers coming down to the bar over the next 5, 10, 20 years. Um, I, I jump I, in there really quickly yeah, on, on, on that point. Um, absolutely, uh, Sandra, like the, just before I move into third level, the, the primary and secondary schools, um, the, the curriculum there is, is still a, atrocious to this day and really does need to change and that's something that that black and irish is working on at the minute and um, so we, we've we've made a representation to the ncca which is national curriculum authority and we're working with a group called black inclusive curriculum um in, in order to hopefully bring about change and you'll see a large campaign around ireland hopefully between the 7th and the 20th of of february um but just moving back to to third level education um I'm sure, like I've I've never been a lecturer, so I'm I'm sure it, it is, um, 
you know, quite difficult look, looking at this and, and what's happening. But one thing that I do know, just taking a different angle on it, is that you've got a lot of students in front of you who I'm sure are, would also be very passionate on, on, on this issue. And there is a lot of, of power in the students. So putting, putting it to them, you know, and saying, I noticed this. What, what, what do you think? Um, or, or, or even if, it, you know, you, I don't know if there's scope to do it, but if there's any extracurriculars around uh, speaking about the curriculum, um, and, and, and how they're, they're viewing their experience and, and what they think uh, or, or if they think it's important to see, you know, more representation within who is teaching them and, and the material that they're seeing. I'm sure the, the, the response that you, you would get will, will be quite encouraging and that you would see that people do want to see change. So um, that's one thing that I would encourage. There's many groups going around Ireland at the moment who are very uh, or who are advocating for changes in, in, in the third level curriculum to make sure that it is more representative and that the material is more inclusive. Thanks a million, Leon. Um, I'm going to go to Emily's question now. Um, she says, do you have any suggestions as to how individual practitioners at the bar can help in shifting the culture to become more inclusive, particularly where we don't have the supportive structure of chambers? Um, you know, this is obviously, we're 2,200 barristers in, in uh, the law library and spread across the country. Um, but, you know, I, I love the idea of this. What can the individual practitioner do, um, you know, now? <laughs> because I'm sure there are things we can start doing right now. Um, so I suppose I, I might come to um, Leon first. Are there things that you can think of? Uh, and I might come to Simon then after that, if that's okay. You know, what can an individual do um, in, in their workplace to, I suppose, um, help shift the culture? Yeah, so the first thing I will say is that do, doing things along can often be be quite difficult so just just be prepared that you may face a little bit of an of, of, of an uphill battle um the, the first thing that i'd recommend doing is trying to get as many people onto your side as possible um and you know speaking to any of your colleagues um who share your sentiments and and trying to get them to, to your way of of thinking and and then taking action and um, but things that, that you can do is you, you know start asking the question uh you, you know of your peers like is is this really inclusive? Could, could we make this more inclusive? You know, how do you, how do you think people that um you know how, how do we think ethnic minorities would feel in this scenario or coming into this room and uh, and seeing this? You, you know, asking questions can actually be, be quite powerful because it can make people think, oh, actually, yeah, I I didn't even think of that. Um, so I I think that 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 would be the way to to start. But I, I'd love to hear um Sandra's and and Simon's recommendations as well. So I'm going to come to you. Um, I while while that was while you guys were talking in the previous questions, I was actually typing a partial answer to that question. So I'll just read it out. <laughs> and effectively, what I said was that it's a challenging one, um, and I think you know part of it is about allyship and education. It's about putting yourself, you know, educating yourself about what the issue is, and also being an active ally. And with the allyship, the diff the real challenge there is calling out and challenging inappropriate behavior because and that that is a big step to take but if you could if you can put yourself in that position it will help because what you're doing is bringing to the attention of others who either may be less well educated aware um, there may be some intent behind it but at least if they understand that you will not tolerate that and you are you are supporting your ethnic minority colleagues in that particular space that will help shift the dial. It is not 
easy and is and again it comes back to this whole thing that it's going to be incredibly uncomfortable to do that but those you know and i'm not saying that needs to be done in every in every situation and it does come back to what leon says about also gathering others around you and to have everybody on on the same page so i think there are there are a series of different things you can do and those two things i mean definitely increasing your education and, and, and being an active ally will help um, and in, you know, insofar as you feel comfortable doing so, definitely if, in, if there is an inappropriate behavior is, is sort of calling that, challenging that, or even supporting those who, and, and, and the way in which that can be done is, is not necessarily directly sort of challenging the person who is doing that. It might be actually providing support to the person who is on the receiving end. And so at least they are in a safe space mm -hmm. and are, are are not feeling as isolated knowing that they've got some support so there are there will be different ways to tackle it depending on what the circumstances are mm -hmm. so you want to come in with yeah anything? just very briefly and and uh, for me i suppose two things really that are coming out here and one is calling it out and the other thing is allyship and and they were the two things i would have pointed to Certainly from my perspective, uh, you know, on my journey of uh, becoming more aware around um, uh, race equality is that it's not it's not enough to just say not be racist. You need to be anti-racist. And, and that's certainly and part of that is sometimes removing yourself from what can be a nice, very comfortable fishbowl of privilege, as I describe it, uh, because the minute you call somebody out, you, you automatically remove yourself from that fishbowl that's nice and warm there, you know, and that's the thing. So it's about, uh, and, and what is that? That's about being an active ally. It's not just about saying, oh yeah, I'm, I'm an ally. That's about educating yourself, um, finding out what the real challenges are within the organization, having a real clear understanding and perspective around the challenges. And, and certainly one of the things I've learned about being an ally in every aspect to say, not just about race equality um, is, that it's much more powerful for somebody like me to raise something and call something out for an under, underrepresented group in exactly the same way in the work I do around gender equality. There is nothing more powerful than a man standing up talking about what need the action that needs to be taken around gender equality. So I think uh, um, to Leon's point, you know, gather your allies, uh, get the educate them and empower them. Um, to be the, the, the people who will be anti-racist and step outside the comfort zone and call people out. They're, they're really fundamental things to start to drive change across the organization. And I think when you line those things up, you'd be very surprised what a small group um, that have been mobilized in that way, uh, uh, you'd be surprised at, at uh, how they can help you drive the change. And um, Sarah Phelan asked a, a really important question, I suppose, um, again, this goes back to what we were talking about, that I suppose we can have all the equality action plans at the Bar of Ireland as we want, but, you know, if it's if there's work not being done in other areas around us, it will have a very, very limited effect. Um, and Sarah Phelan's point was, um, you know, listening to Simon regarding chamber clerks, um, clearly the Bar of Ireland needs to be talking to the Law Society uh, in terms of um, educating solicitors to be aware of and conscious of briefing a more diverse range of counsel. Um, so it's the, this, this idea of equitable briefing and what that means in reality. Um, and I suppose, um, you know, that that data reporting aspect as well and how important that is uh, just with driving um, driving that change. Um, 
I see a, a, a question here from Cormac O'Coolin. Um, have the panel any views or thoughts in respect of the data collection issue, um, apart from population stats, re race or ethnicity, are there um, other dimensions to the data collection challenge that we should also be considering? And I suppose to give this context, you know, currently at the Bar of Ireland, we don't gather this type of data. Um, and going back to Simon's uh, point earlier of enough data and I start, uh, start doing, I suppose we don't have a huge amount of data. Um, but I think um, I would certainly be of the view that it doesn't have to be a sequential thing. It can happen. Um, together, I suppose, in an organic way. But uh, going back to Cormac's question there, are there any other dimensions apart from simply race or ethnicity that um, that, that we should be looking at? I'll just come in there briefly, um, uh, Aoife, and, and just to say that that's exactly what we've done with Inclusio is we've built a software tool that allows people to anonymously build their diversity profile across a hundred different data points. So we look at things around neurodiversity, um, disability, socioeconomic background, educational attainment, like every single aspect that we can of human difference. What you like to do in your spare time? Do you have dogs? Which is quite an interesting one. We've seen uh, the data collection over, over COVID go from 12% to 19% of people who have pets, which is quite interesting. Um, but just, just to say, look, we're all individually different I think uh, it's a very powerful thing for an organization to have a really deep diversity profile across the organization because it gives you a real sense then around where do I need to focus my efforts? And it does break it down. It chunks it down into things that are actionable. So rather than you feel like you're trying to solve one big problem, you might pick mm -hmm. two or three things and go, right, that's what we're going to focus on for the moment. So the data, that baseline data is really, really important. Yeah, and I would I would just come in here. It's also important because it it will provide you with the intersection and analysis that sometimes hides even further sort of discrimination and 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 issues that won't come to the fore. So it's in in in, in as much as if you can make it as granular as possible, um, that will actually help because you know again within the context of England and Wales, you know, doing that inter intersection analysis was we were in a position to be able to say, well, when you look at race and gender and you look at that and you look at work allocation and income, we can then track and see, you know, at the top of the pyramid, for want of a better phrase, you have white men and at the bottom of the period you have pyramid, you have black women, and then you have the sort of the gradations in between. Um, and in particular, within, you know, within England and Wales or the UK, the, the you know, the moving away from the use of the term BAME or BME, it actually becomes quite important to have more granular data because I think, again, it comes back to, to the point Sandra's just made, that will then direct you as to what you need to, to address yourself to because the more you the more you lump together, the easier it is to hide things and then say, actually, there's not much of a problem. Um. And another, um, I suppose, perspective that Chloe um, Cass has raised there, uh, rather than looking at it from a practitioner perspective, um, is there anything that the panelists think practitioners could be doing for our clients and um, things that we might be missing in how we approach clients who are from um, minority groups? Um, this is obviously hugely important and it's a, it's a similar point that we discussed in the disability uh, webinar we did in December. You know. Um, the legal professions come in, into contact with 
all parts of society. Um, so I suppose I'll, I'll throw that out there. Leanne, I might come to you first. If Do you have any, um, I suppose, answer for Chloe and uh, things that we might think of or bear in mind when we're uh, when we have clients from minority backgrounds? Yeah, absolutely. And at first I can say hi to Chloe. Myself and Chloe are actually all, all, all friends from college. Uh, so hi, Chloe. Hope you're keeping well. Um, yeah, absolutely. Like, you, you know, actually being someone who has had to liaise with just before um, as, as the plaintiff, um, the one of the biggest things that y- you can do as, as a barrister is, is just be patient and just listen. Coming from an, an ethnic minority background, I, I'm sure it's terrifying enough to have to be going in, into a, a courtroom setting anyways. Um, but to, to have the people who are representing you not fully listening to absolutely everything that you're saying and really getting the nuances of what you're trying to put across um, can, can, can be you know, detrimental for a number of reasons. It, it might mean that that person never seeks help from you know a legal professional or or the police ever again uh, or uh, you know so it's important that um you show patience that you really listen and that you really understand exactly what what they're trying to put across to you i know you should be doing that anyways but um in particular for, for ethnic minorities who have that added layer of uh, i think concern when they're going into um those, those types of settings yeah, there's an additional vulnerability um, mm. immediately. And I, I suppose that's, uh, you touched on another problem that we don't go in with assumptions that we we know, <laughs> you know, what what an experience is or, or whatever. Um, and I suppose going back to what you said at the start of this talk, which is, um, you know, ask the question. Um, and I suppose that's, that's the start, even if it is uncomfortable to ask the question because um, t- to know, um, more about where clients are coming from absolutely um simon or, or sandra do you want to come in on that I, I know if there's one or two other questions i definitely want to get in before we uh before we finish up but on that yeah, I, think, I think the only thing i would i would add building on on that is is about the curiosity so not making assumptions about it but also asking questions and sort of digging in deeper so it comes into that whole point about listening to what's been said but also probing and you know as legal professionals that is part of what we do just doing that in a way that is is respectful to the person and actually explaining to them why you might be asking them those questions in that particular way Mm. because a lot of this part of you know part of it might just be well to some extent i need to prepare you for how that's going you know what you 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 may face along the line so i'm gathering this information for this reason so that i'm in a position to ensure that i can best represent you and, and i think sometimes if that's just explained to people in a way that's very simple and straightforward they'll they like they'll accept that and and then you know that that helps build the relationship mm-hmm. and if I, if I was to just add one other thing i think uh, paying attention to our personal biases i think is something that's really really important because you know, our, our biases can be coded into us from a very early age and we can make assumptions and stereotypes about people. Uh, and if we want to be truly inclusive humans, we have to try and deconstruct that. And it's not that you ever forget your bias, right? It's that you come up with a strategy about how to overcome it, to be a better human and be a kinder human. And I think really that's what we're talking about here is being respectful, being kind and, and having empathy for the person who's sitting across the table for you. 
And, and I don't think you need to adjust your if, if that's the way you conduct your life as a human. I don't really think you need to adjust yourself in any way, <laughs> depending on who's sitting across the table from you. But that's a journey for all of us. You know, as I said, it is the deconstruction of, of what we we have. We were taught quite often in our communities and in our schools and through curriculum and lots of many other things. And that's uh, funny that you raised the issue of unconscious bias because Chloe was actually involved in, in the webinar that we were on um, last year on, on the topic of unconscious bias. So um, thanks a million for all of those um, answers. I do want um, to go to um, Llanan's uh, qu question here. Is there any recommendation on how to call someone out um, on behaviours without putting people on the defensive um, so that you can... I suppose, allow growth from everyone involved. Um, I, I think that's a, actually a really um, great question because it's it's the point at which people, you know, lose courage and then just um, exit stage left, you know. Um, so I suppose, how would, would you have any recommendations on in that moment where you, you do want to call somebody out, um, you know, on, until people get into the rhythm of calling people out, um, what would you recommend? Can I come in there? Just something that I think uh, how I've done it. Um, I've practiced with my family and my friends <laughs> because you're in a safe space. They love you anyway. OK, so you'll figure it out. It's very uncomfortable. It's uncomfortable for them because you've embarrassed them. It's uncomfortable for you because you've got outside the, your normal interaction. Mm -hmm. uh, but I'm not I'm serious. I know I'm laughing there, but I'm very serious. Start with closer to home. Because when you get comfortable, it becomes a lot easier. The more comfortable you are, I think then you don't create that uncomfortableness for the other person so much. So practice with your inner circle. And, and it's back to that point I made is it's not enough to just be, and you know, uh, not racist. You need to be anti-racist. And that's really what we're talking about here is stepping outside your comfort zone. Uh, yeah, starting from home is, is is a great place, and coming from a mixed race family, I've, I've had the the um, the opportunity for for practice and, and real life simulation there. Um, one thing I suppose you can never uh, preempt how someone is is going to um, you, you know respond when when you call them out. They they may be completely like actually you know what you're you're absolutely right, or or yeah you're right. They they may completely go on the defensive. One thing that that works is one thing that might work is setting out the context before you you uh you know tell them what they said or or, or did wrong and uh, and part of that could be like you know sitting that sitting them down and saying look i completely understand that you didn't mean it in this way or um like uh, look I, I i know we're both coming from the same place so i just wanted to you know say this to you um because it's, it's something that I, I i don't think is right um if you if you frame it in a way that you're sitting on opposite sides of the table, um, or, or sitting on opposite sides of a problem, often then you can clash. However, if if you approach the conversation that like you're both on the same side and you're both looking at the problem together, that often can can make it a lot easier when when, when you're calling someone out. Um, one thing I'd also recommend is not doing it in front of your peers. Um, you could call someone out in the nicest way possible, but if it's in front of other people, you can guarantee that they re they really want to appreciate it, regardless of, of of how you do it. So, I'd recommend in a in a in a one to one setting um, first before uh, bringing it to to a group. Brilliant, Simon. I think the only thing I would add to that, um, and, and the advice from both Leon and Sandra is very very good, is also 
try to take the emotion out of it. So you're not going to become not to, not to approach it to be cold, but yeah, I think you do need to be quite rational um, and sort of be very clear about what it is that you're trying in, in addressing the point, what it is that you're trying to get them to see and to be receptive as uncomfortable as that may be to what they say in response. Mm -hmm. Because otherwise, not, not that, not that it, it will necessarily in your mind have any justification, but if you are sitting down, as, as Leon says, and you're trying to do it on both sides, you know, you're both on the same side, you're saying something that they're going to respond. And if they respond in a way that you, you know, it, they, they feel threatened or, or, or a bit defensive, I think you, you still need to maintain and be open to what they're saying and finding a sort of, again, a, a fairly calm and, and rational way of saying, okay, I understand that, but this is how, it, this is how what you said landed. This is the impact that it has. Mm -hmm. And it does require, I think, not just a lot of courage, but it requires a lot of self-control to, to, to sort of keep the conversation um, as sort of um, calm as possible. Yeah. Because if you allow, if you, I think if you allow motion to get into it, and I'm not, and, and believe you me, if you're in that situation of wanting to call people out, you know, it most likely has triggered you. Um, you have got to sort of bring your, bring yourself back to a sort of a safe space before approaching that other person. Because I think if you don't do that, you're, you're going to put yourself in a position where, in fact, you've made not that it necessarily made things worse, but the situation then spirals out and becomes a lot bigger than what it may well have been at the start. Yeah. Um, and I think that in combination with Leon's point of, you know, just if it happens in a group setting, just hold back and um, do, you know, raise it one on one. Um, that's fantastic. Uh, I really appreciate um, that this your time, I suppose, for the last hour and um, the insights that you've given us. And it's been just really brilliant to, to start talking about how you know, how we should start talking uh, more about race and ethnicity um, within our workspace uh, here at the bar. So thank you again um, for coming along uh, to Simon, to Leon, to Sandra, and uh, a huge thank you to Lindsay and Melissa who um, set everything up for us so easily. All we have to do is log in and be here and smile. So thanks very much to, uh, to Lindsay and to Melissa. And thank you to everyone who stayed on here. I know we've gone a few minutes over. Um, the, the 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 hour but we really appreciate uh, everyone logging in and i hope you all have a nice evening <laughs>